What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. We have another fantastic author for you today. But before we get started, uh, just a few quick things. Make sure, if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul, all right? I've been working my butt off on some new projects and everything like that, so I want to make sure you don't miss any of it. So follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. I'm also on Facebook, too. I don't really use it too much, but I do post, like, updates and content and things like that. So if you want to, you can go follow the Rewired Soul on Facebook, too. But uh, Twitter and Instagram are mainly where I chat with all of you guys and all that. And so that's a much better place to be following me. All right. And, and if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss any, any upcoming episodes. All right. But yeah, anyways, today's author is Christian Miller. All right. So check it out. I just read his book for the second time and he's re- he's written a couple books, but, uh, Christian, he is a uh, a philosopher and he studies moral philosophy, but more importantly, character, right? And he is part of something called the Character Project. And they ask big questions like, what does it mean to be a good person? And we talk about that in this episode. And, you know, something I really wanted to ask him about is, you know, how we judge the character of others. Because his book is fantastic. And as you'll hear in this conversation, and hopefully you'll grab his book, we are terrible, terrible at judging character. Like how many times have we thought somebody was a good person and they were awful, right? Or how many times do we think somebody's awful and we never really gave them a chance because of like the the halo or the horn effect, right? There's like one aspect about them or we just happen to see them in one situation. We're like, oh, oh, this person is terrible or oh, this person is fantastic. And as you'll hear in this conversation with Christian, it's much more nuanced than that. But, you know, we ask other questions like, you know, do you need God and religion to be moral? Is morality subjective or can we look at different aspects of morality and they are objective? But then, like, we dive into, uh, you know, his newer book, which is a little bit more academic, but it's on honesty. And, yeah, it's interesting. There's there's definitely a lot to talk about when it comes to honesty. And uh, some of you have heard my other episodes with authors talking about like trust and deception and lying and all that. So it's, it's really great to get that kind of philosophical point of view as we talk about honesty. And as, as we have that conversation, I ask him if Immanuel Kant was asking a little bit too much of us back in the day when he was coming up with his own kind of views on honesty and all that. But anyways, I'm super glad uh, Christian was able to make it on. So make sure you head down to the description and you are following him over on Twitter and I will link his books as well. But yeah, this is a really, really interesting conversation. I love chatting with him about all this stuff. All right. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Christian Miller about his book, The Character Gap, as well as his other new book, Honesty. All right. Hello, Christian. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I just uh, finished my second read of the character gap and you have a new more academic book uh, called honesty out but yeah so so for those who have yet to meet you can you kind of give us uh, a little bit of your background and and how that 
inspired the character gap? Sure. So I'm a uh, professor of philosophy here at Wake Forest University, where I've been for the last 18 years. I have always been just in, in love with philosophy, starting in high school, where I had some chance, chances to take some college courses in philosophy. Then I went on to college, majored in philosophy, went on to graduate school at Notre Dame, got my PhD in philosophy, studying ethics, and then well, was hired by Wake Forest. My interests have always been in the area, broadly speaking, of morality and ethics, focusing initially on whether uh, morality is objective or merely relative mm. or subjective. And that occupied me for a number of years, but I kind of said what I wanted to say and got a little bit burned out on that. I shifted over to the topic of character about so 12 years or so ago and was really intrigued in particular about the inter interdisciplinary questions, not just about you know, conceptually, what is the definition of character, but also empirically, does character exist? What does it look like? Uh, how good or bad are we? So that um, kind of got me on a new research trajectory for a while, staying at the academic level, though, mm -hmm. uh, doing the kind of things that academics do, writing books and articles that no one reads and uh, the gather dust in the, in the shelves of the libraries. Uh, but that, that's, those issues really grabbed me. And I felt like I had something worthwhile to say about them. Mm. So about oh, five or six years ago, I thought, um, what if I could try to get some of these ideas out to a larger audience? Uh, you know, take, don't, don't um, take any truth away from them, but take a lot of the academic jargon and the technicality and the so forth. Mm -hmm. Take that away, um, increase the accessibility try to incorporate some real world events and some literature and some sports and things like this to make it more uh, engaging and write for a popular audience, write for a large audience. And that was the idea that inspired the character gap. So mm. it's an attempt to take what I've done for many years in the academic world about thinking about character and uh, make it much more accessible while not taking any anything away from the value of the ideas or the truth of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So looking at, looking at, uh, this will just be the last thing. Um, the, uh, questions of what is character? Why is character important? Um, how good is our character and mm -hmm. how can we grow and improve in character? Yeah. So yeah. And, and knowing like, you know, uh, what, what your goal was, you, you nailed it, Christian. So, <laughs> so well done. Yeah. Thank you. Because yeah, because I'm a guy who got interested in philosophy and stuff like that later in life. And, you know, so like sometimes I got, especially like the older philosophers, I dive into that. I'm like, what the hell are you even saying? You know, so, <laughs> so and, but, but yeah, so you, 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 you were discussing how like you, you started out like being interested in like morality as a subjective or objective and you kind of transitioned into character. So something I'm always trying to do, you know, cause I'm still, you know, trying to figure out like what, what interests me? Why do I do this podcast? Why do I read the books I read? Why do I talk to the people I talk to? And a lot of it is just real world application and something I've, you know, one of the reasons I really got into reading and learning and stuff was to understand uh, just the views on morality because um, I went through something in 2019 uh, with the internet mob and I was just like, huh, I'm like, this is interesting, you know, how, how people see what's good versus bad and stuff like that. So I, I, I do believe it's a really important subject because when you look at just, you know, uh, like morality, character, like I'm a recovering drug addict. So these are things that, you know, I've had to get better and evolve my character and take a look at my values and my morals and all that. So I, I really see the real world applications and the importance of it is something I'm teaching my son. So out of curiosity, like what, 
what what drew you to this this subject like when you like you were interested in philosophy what made you say like huh what what's going on with this, this specific topic because there's so many branches you know what i mean so what was it yeah. about this that interested you yeah yeah so so it's so it's twofold so what was initially that interested me about the status of morality and then why uh move into character um the the status of morality question i think i i just was frankly just intellectually curious i just wanted mm-hmm. to know um here's something that's so important in our lives morality um, where, you know, it says, do, do this, do not do this. This is good. This is bad. This is virtuous. This is vicious. Um, where does it come from? What is, what is the source of it? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is just invented or created by human beings? In which case, if we choose to, we can change it at our discretion. Mm-hmm. Or is it something that's more top down imposed upon us from the outside by divine being, or just part of the nature of reality that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, frankly, I was just intellectually curious about that. Yeah. Um, that as time went on, I moved into the character world. And that I think definitely had more than just the intellectual curiosity behind it. It had real personal significance to me and to my, the world that I was inhabiting. So uh, I started off being single, then I got married, we had children. I, you know, it's not just my character that I'm thinking about it anymore. Yeah. Um, if, like you said, you said, your son, I've got three children of my own now. I'm thinking about, you know, what is good character and how can they, their path take them on uh, a path of good character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I'm also thinking about my character. I'm thinking about uh, the world in general and how a lot of the, the difficulties we're facing and the adversity we're facing. Um, so I think the character issue definitely was much more than just academic exercise or an in, in, in engagement mm. with intellectual questions. Um, it was still that, though. But it also, t- to me, it's one of those areas where philosophy really matters. And this is a place where we can, you know, really make a difference in thinking about how to live our lives. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with you, you're doing philosophy for so long. Like, I, I, I feel it's one of the most, you know, just important subjects. And, you know, it seems like just, uh, you know, I'm always thinking about like the average person, right? Like, I'm like, if I just walked up to a complete stranger would they care about this, whether it's, you know, politics or, you know, uh, uh, you know, just like different aspects of like society and stuff and, you know, or different topics like philosophy. And it seems like if I mentioned like philosophy, you think of some like hoity-toity guy, like, you know, mm-hmm. in a library reading, you know, but philosophy for me, one of the reasons I got interested in it is because it's more about, you know, you use that word like intellectual curiosity. It's like being curious and asking questions and being comfortable, not always having a definitive answer. So I'm always trying to think like, how do we get these topics or even these ideals to people? Right. Um, Because I, I, I feel like one of the biggest issues when we look at any kind of conflict is this very like, here's my, here's how I see it. That's what it is. And we, we hold on to it. Right. But philosophy kind of opens us up. So just from your experience, like, do you think people struggle with that, that kind of curiosity and being okay with not having the answers and diving deep? Like what, what do you think blocks us from that? Ooh, yeah. That's a lot of good questions there. Um, I mean, my experience, first of all, is that people are not that familiar with philosophy. Um, they, they see it, as you said, often as an academic exercise that's more abstract or otherworldly or head in the clouds, detached from real world application. So what I do 
in uh, let's take an example uh in my introduction of philosophy classes mm. where i have students in there who never had philosophy before uh, is i try to get them immersed in doing actual philosophy as quickly as they can uh, mm. as quickly as we can so i don't spend any time defining philosophy or giving a history of philosophy yeah the, the very first cl real class we have together as a uh, with me is one in which we engage with the philosophical arguments. And it's, a, it's an argument about whether God exists or not. Mm. Uh, so uh, then we, we talk about questions like, does God exist? What are the arguments for? What are the arguments against? Uh, is faith re reasonable or rational, rational to, to have in your life? Um, what is the nature of the self? Who am I? Uh, is there any possibility of an afterlife? Where does morality come from? Should we always act in our self-interest? Do we have obligations? towards those who are starving to death was the morality of abortion and the death penalty. And then we end the semester with the meaning of life. Mm. Um, what, what is our, the point of this whole thing? Is there any purpose to our lives? So it's not convincing them that philosophy is valuable. In general, it's engaging with particular topics that they quickly get interested in and care about and, and have a discussion about. Um, now, to more specifically tie that to your question, um, when I do this, I make sure to not just present them with one side and say, this is the correct side, and I'm just going to be entrenched in mm -hmm. thinking that. Um, I never give them my opinion. Um, I always present to them one side of the debate and the other side of the debate and show that there are good arguments on both sides and let them make up their own minds. Uh, so I'm trying to model a certain kind of openness, uh, curiosity, uh, uh, you know, intellectual honesty, discovery mm -hmm. for them and let the truth hopefully win out and lead them on a certain kind of path uh, that, that uh, you know, um, but whether it's in agreement with my views or not, um, as long as it's intellectually honest, engaged, mm -hmm. and hopefully, hopefully going towards the truth, I'm going to be really happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something uh, I, I was writing about this the, the other day, uh, in a piece I wrote, but like with my son, I, you know, I don't want to tell him what to think. I want to teach him how to think. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. Like, you know, like we're so worried about misinformation and propaganda and so many other things. Well, it's like, well, if I can teach my son how to think, then I don't really got to worry about what comes his way because he'll stop and ask questions. But, but yeah, he's, he's 12, but sometimes it gets so frustrating. He'll ask me a question. I'll return it with another question, you know, and all that. And it gets like, you know, frustrating, but, uh, but I want to get, his wheels turning and, and yeah, kind of like you said, like you do with your students, kind of create that, that kind of openness, right. And, and just ask questions and, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting too, because sometimes I feel like I'm coming off as like a contrarian because I try to think of all the angles. Hell, even when I read, I read books from people, I just completely disagree with just to <laughs> see, you know what I mean? Oh, I do, it, I do, yeah. yeah. And it's difficult, it's but it, when I understand that, when somebody brings up a point, I'm like, okay, well, what about this like because i'm trying to figure out how do we bring those together but but yeah so so you touched on this like uh with your intro intro to philosophy uh class like when we're talking about like religion does god exist so one of the one of the key arguments when it comes to like the topic of morality right yeah. like when it comes to like belief in faith i'm curious how you address this topic about do you need religion for morality like for me it seems like a very simple answer right like i'm like i'm uh atheist and have teetered on agnostic uh when i like uh you know got sober and stuff like that but regardless of me not going to church and following the you know 
whatever rules they have. I'm not out killing and raping and, you know, doing all these things. So, yeah. so like, I think, you know, just, I can look at myself and be like, well, I'm an example of having morals without religion. So, so how do you present, uh, this, this conversation and this topic and have people kind of think about it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a big, big topic. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think we have to approach it from a couple of different angles. Mm. Uh, there's the meta ethical angle, which means the foundational angle, the grounding angle. So, um, does morality itself, the truths of morality, do they depend upon God or religion or a higher power mm -hmm. such that if there is no higher power, there's no objective truth about morality. And so we're left with something like relativism or we're left with nihilism about morality, but we don't get any, uh, truths about morality that are objective. That's one set of issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we can talk about that. Uh, and I have certainly have used there. Uh, another set of issues is, um, actual moral behavior. So do you have to be religious in the first place in order to be a good person and to behave well, uh, and are only, um, you know, the, are the only moral saints there are religious people. And that's, that's a set, second set of issues there. That, I think that's what you were getting at with your mm -hmm. own example. Um, I think it's pretty clear. The answer is no as well. Just like you said, uh, there are people who are religious who behave very well, but also people who are religious who behave poorly. There are people who are not religious who behave very well and people who are not religious who behave, behave poorly. So there's no necessary connection here. What's um, more interesting, I think, to explore is whether there are any trends or correlations, you might say. Mm. Uh, so since it's clear there's no necessary connection, is it still such that um, religious people of a certain kind tend to be more and then fill in the blank, mm. more, more honest, more, um, you know, loving, more generous, et cetera. Uh, and that question is an empirical question. So now we have to step outside the realm of philosophy. We have to get into the realm of empirical research. Mm -hmm. and I, you know, this is not research I conduct myself. All I can do is just read what other people have published. Mm -hmm. And as you might expect with empirical research, it's messy. There are studies that go in different directions. There's no clear you know, clear cut narrative, easy answer here. Um, but what you do find is, uh, lots of correlational studies. So they're not causal studies or correlational studies, mm -hmm. uh, between measures of religiosity and good outcomes, mm -hmm. um, where the measures of religiosity are things like frequency of prayer, frequency of attendance at services, frequency of reading of the sacred texts and so forth. And the good outcomes are things like, um, Amount donated to charity, number of hours volunteered, uh, completion of homework. I mean, it's it, it yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty across the board. And in general, not saying this is true of all studies, but in <laughs> general, the studies tend to go in this direction. As religiosity goes up, the good outcomes go up. Yeah. Um, so, um, so higher religiosity correlates with increased number of hours volunteered. Yeah higher amounts donated to charity, both religious charities and non-religious charities, um, uh, uh, better performance educationally, increased health, um, longer lifespan. So that's the, the overall trends with exceptions. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of empirical messy literature we'd have to get into if we really want to explore that yeah. topic in more detail. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so 
I, when I first got sober, like I had no health insurance, nothing. I was rock bottom. And they're like, here, go to 12 step meetings. You're probably going to die. I'm like, okay. So I go in there, thought it was a cult. And, you know, uh, they talk about God and all this. But, anyways, like, even though I, I didn't believe I wasn't a believer and stuff like that, like they, you know, I, you know, I won't dive into all that trickiness, but they'd say, you know, a higher power of your understanding. But basically, I started looking at it. I'm like, huh, like, you guys, you guys are, you guys are basically just telling me to be a good person, right? Like I don't need to believe in something. Like you guys are just kind of giving me these principles. But anyways, uh, later on, even though he's, you know, one of the new atheists, I read Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, right? And it's like spirituality without religion. I'm like, boom, that's my thing, uh-huh. right? Uh, I read a book called uh, um, Religion for Atheists from Alan Day Baton, right? And basically, uh-huh. he analyzes a bunch of different religious practices. He's like, hey. You know, this is pretty good. Like this, you know, you wouldn't just say this is bad. So, mm. you know, I like the idea that we can at least learn from them. Like you're talking about some of the studies around, you know, giving to charity and, you know, just being mm. a good person and all that. And uh, uh, there's actually uh, David, uh, ugh, David Desteno. He's coming out with a new book that's similar. But anyways, right. what I'm getting at. Uh, so something that you've you've done for a while is is the character project, right? And you look at, and like you mentioned, you look at this research. So I I try to be very scientific minded and you spend a section of the book discussing this. Like what's, what's this mean? What's it mean to be a good person? What's it mean to have good character? But uh, I'm hoping you could explain, like when you bring in science, it feels like there's a lot of subjectivity, right? Like what is good? And examples I always look at is, uh, I'm a vegetarian. It was mainly for health reasons, not moral reasons, right? But I know plenty of meat eaters. Like if I was one of those moral vegetarians, oh. like, you know, whatever, like, even though I know meat eaters, I don't think they're a terrible person, right? Oh, oh. So there's like this subjectivity and, you know, and all that, and depending on how you're raised or whatever, like, for example, I grew up here in Las Vegas, who we don't have hardcore Mormons, but there are oh. Mormons who practice polygamy in their upbringing that is completely 1000% moral, you know? So anyways, scientifically, when you're looking at this research, how, how do we know what's good and what's bad? How do we, how do we pin down that, that data and those outcomes? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So a couple different uh, points here I'll make. Um, One is that I'm assuming in the background, a kind of moral objectivist or moral realist framework. So I'm assuming that there's a kind of objective morality where certain things are right or certain things are wrong, period, uh, objectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you have like, not, an example? Uh, yeah, so uh, slavery is wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that's objectively wrong. Um, torturing innocent people merely for amusement is wrong. Um, keeping your promises typically is obligatory. Mm-hmm. Um, rescuing a drowning child, to use an example from Peter Singer, uh, rescuing a drowning child in a pond is obligatory. Um, these are all examples of things I think, which are not just a matter of my opinion, but they are in fact, what is dictated by morality for all people, uh, uh, in those cases. Yeah. Like if you took a poll, as long as the person's not a psychopath, most people will agree, you know, yeah. but but their agreement is not what makes it true. Mm. It's true. And then they agree with it. So if it's it's the agreement that makes it true, that's more relativism. That's just, we human beings are constructing the morality out of our opinion. Um, and if, so, it, you know, if, if that were the way it worked, then in the future, if our opinions changed, then the morality would change. So it, morality would just fluctuate with our opinions. I don't th- have that view at all. I think it's, there are truths about morality and we can try to learn them. 
uh, live up to them. Often we fall short and we've gotten things wrong. Like with respect to slavery in the past, we got things very wrong. Um, and we're making progress now. We're doing better than we used to do, but we still have a long way to go. Mm. Um, now, tie this back to the character stuff. So all that's, by the way, is, that's a philosophy. Science isn't going to help you with any of that. Um, science is empirical. It's not normative. It doesn't help you decide what's right or wrong, good or bad. Um, second point is now we're entering the world of character. We're talking about virtues and vices. And I can say a lot about what, what those are, definitions and so forth. But to engage with your question, uh, I chose virtues and vices, which I thought were relatively uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. I wanted to stay away from controversial hot button issues because it would just be distracting. Yeah. I wanted to pick, pick things like honesty, which overwhelmingly people think is a good thing, is a virtue. Compassion, again, overwhelmingly people think that's a good thing. And say, okay, when we look at the empirical research, to what extent are people actually behaving in situations where they could mm. be compassionate or they could not? If they, people were compassionate, they would do the compassionate thing. But lo and behold, many times they don't. Yeah. And if people were honest, they would do the honest thing. But lo and behold, many times they don't. So to make that uh, very vivid, I can give you a couple examples of some studies. So um, again, I'm trying to pick uncontroversial situations mm -hmm. where we would agree that is not honest or that is not compassionate. Uh, and I'm going to draw conclusions from that and say, look, these kind of studies sh suggest that most people, in fact, are not compassionate. Most people, in fact, are not honest. Mm -hmm. um, so to give it some meat on the bones here, um, a very famous example is the Milgram studies from the 1960s. Yeah. These, for the listeners who are not familiar with them, these are the shock experiments where under pressure from, well, back up one step, um, participants would come into the lab be told to administer a test to someone in the next room. The test was rigged so that the person in the next room would get a lot of the answers wrong. Um, the person who is a participant would be told, every time there's a wrong answer, turn up the style and administer a greater shock yeah. to the test taker in the next room. There was an authority figure standing behind the uh, participants, making sure everything was going according to plan and who would nudge the participant if the participant was showing some signs of hesitancy. What ended up happening is that more wrong answers by design, because there really was no shock going on. This was all rigged, but the participant didn't know this. The participant thought it was real. There was really going to be shocks. Lo and behold, there wasn't. Um, as time went on, more wrong answers, more shocks, increasing the dial. The person in the next room starts screaming in pain and yelling and saying, Get me out of here. I, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I have a heart condition. Mm -hmm. they, pound, they pound on the walls. And yes, the participants in the majority of cases will continue to administer the test, continue to turn the shock dial up all the way to the XXX level of shock, which is the lethal level, which in a, from their perspective is going to kill mm -hmm. an innocent person taking a test. Um, now, I hope it's not too controversial to say that that's not what I would expect. Of yeah. a, I'm a compassionate person, right? That's, that's an example having to do with compassion. Um, let me shift to an, another example now having to do with honesty, and I'll stop. Um, so a much more recent study, uh, it, it, it follows this kind of script when it comes to testing people's honesty. Um, you bring a participant into the lab. You say, you're going to take a test that has 20 problems. 
you were going to be paid uh, 50 cents per correct answer that you get. Um, so, you know, sit down. Here's the test. Good luck. Let us know when you're done. The participant works on the test, finishes it, turns it in, and it's graded by the experimenter. And then they get, let's say, seven correct answers. Okay, well, that's not so interesting. A different variation. Different participants, they come into the lab. They're told you're going to take this test, 20, uh, 20 problems, 50 cents per correct answer. But then at the end, you're going to grade it. The experimenter's not going to grade it. You're going to grade it yourself, destroy all your materials, and just tell us how you did. And in this variation, uh, one of these studies, it was 14 reported on average mm. out of 20, as opposed to the control group where there's no opportunity to cheat, where it was seven out of 20. Yeah. Uh, so again, I hope that's not too controversial to say that that's not what I expect of an honest person. Yeah. An honest person should report how they actually did on the test as opposed to embellishing their performance in order to get paid more. Yeah. Um, so, so two different illustrations of the kind of studies I like to use uh, which do, I think, tell us something about how good or not so good, maybe, we mm -hmm. actually are. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you discuss a lot of these in the character gap. And one of my, one of my favorites, too, is, uh, is the Good Samaritan study, right? Like that one. And, and something I'm really interested in, too, which I, I think is like so important to understand is, is the bystander effect, right? Cool. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times when good people don't do anything. And we see, again, we see that all over the place like uh you know workplace harassment when these when these uh big news stories break like hey there was sexual harassment or uh you know uh sexual assault going on in the workplace for a long time why did nobody say anything right and a lot of it is the bystander effect so like not doing anything i'm like yeah right because you know going back like a good person would you know do something to help the other person and you know all that but anyways anyways uh real quick go ahead. i'm just gonna say that that's one of my favorite studies too. I, I, I could give you a whole bunch more and I just want to all of our time to get <laughs> They need but, to get the book is what they need yeah, to do. No, that, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, that kind of research has, has been around for a long time. It goes back to the 60s. Yeah. Um, so th there's a you know, famous study from 1968 where uh, someone would come into the lab, take a survey. A stranger would come in as well, sit in the same room with them, take the same survey. Then there would be an emergency that happens in the next room and the person in charge is screaming in pain. It sounds like she's falling off a ladder. She needs help. And if the stranger you're with does nothing, it's very likely you'll do nothing as well. Yeah. Only only 7%, not 70, 7% of participants in this study helped when the stranger did nothing. As opposed to in a different version where there was no stranger, 70% helps. So 7% versus 70% where the only relevant difference was the presence or absence of a non-helpful stranger. Mm -hmm. That's the bystander effect in, you know, like all its glory or glory is maybe not the right word, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terribleness. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something we've known for a long time. It's again, uncontroversially, I think, failing to be compassionate and another kind of uh, disappointing aspect of our character. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is uh, just a simple, a simple type thing that I, I try to teach my my son too, because uh, conformity is a big one too, like the mm -hmm. Ash conformity experiments. And I, I, I teach my son like, hey, there's probably other people in the group who agree with you, mm -hmm. but somebody has to speak up. So, you know, do that. And something my dad always taught me actually was be a leader, not a follower, right? Mm -hmm. So, right. you know, because he he's 12 years old, 
uh, you know, here in Vegas, the kids are all back to school and everything masked up and everything, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried, you know, like, you know, 12 years old he's he's about to be 13 at the end of this year. And, you know, like that's when peer pressure sets in. Mm-hmm. So I want him to know and kind of develop these things, but out of curiosity, have you, have you read the book or are you familiar with him? Uh, Sam Summers wrote a book called situations matter. You might enjoy it. It, okay. it talks about some of these, but anyway, uh, I came across that book and you discuss it quite a bit in the character gap. But something I learned is that, you know, situations matter, context matters, so many cool. things. So anyways, the, 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 the meat of this conversation that I wanted to get to is, is how we judge other people, right? Cool. It's so easy when we sit back and we, we watch, we watch the news or we watch these stories or we see, we see things going on and it's real easy to sit there and say, here's what I would have done. Here's what I would have done in this situation. And Christian, you've been studying this for years and you know that that's not the case. And some of the research you showed, right? Like, like only 7% of people would go help the person in the next room. We're just like, so, so why, why do you think, why do you think it's so difficult for us to, I, I don't, I don't know, because like we're this social species, right? And we're supposed to like be able to put ourselves in another person's shoes, but why is it so difficult? And, and why do we judge people so harshly, right? For what they do or don't do and not realize how many times we've had those same shortcomings? What, what do you think that is? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I can say a few things, but it's uh, to me a largely mysterious. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, I think you're, so here's here the data. Um, here's like the starting point. We are very quick to judge other people's character. Uh, when we see someone behave a certain way one time, we quickly infer from that behavior to the person's underlying dispositions and character. We say, oh, that person must be heroic because they did this one heroic action. Or mm-hmm. this person must be dishonest because they cheated one time on a test or in a, in a marriage or something. Uh, that inference is mistaken um, because, or at least it's a dangerous inference to make because character is much more broad and complicated than one particular action mm-hmm. will tell us. Um, so we haven't said much yet about what, what is character and just what the definition is, but uh, I think our character is uh, both stable over time mm. and consistent across situations. So an honest person needs to be honest in a wide variety of situations, not just when taking tests. So if you see the person behave honestly when taking a test, you can't infer that they're an honest person in general. And similarly, a dishonest person, it works the same way. They're going to be consistent across situations. So uh, when you see the person cheating on a test, you can't infer they're a dishonest person in general either. You need to know how they behave in a wide variety of situations and whether that's a stable pattern to their behavior over time or whether it was just they were having a bad day or something special going on about those, those particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a kind of bad mistake we make. Um, we also uh, over-project how we would behave if we were in the same circumstance, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an optimistic view of ourselves and tend to have a pessimistic view of other people. Um, so we, we downgrade other people's characters, we upgrade our, our character, and both of those are, are usually mistakes. Other people's characters often better than we think it is. And our character is often worse than we think it is. 
Mm-hmm. So we would say, you know, if I was in the Milgram situation, I would never do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, you yeah. know, I, I think you probably would do that. Um, you probably would turn up the dial just as much as everyone else did. Uh, so it's a, it's a lack of, part of what's going on here is a lack of self-understanding mm. about our own character that there are all kinds of surprising features of our character, of our psychology that we don't fully recognize and that hinder us from being the good people we should be. Like the extent to which we would obey authority figures. Mm-hmm. Milgram. And is that the, the gap you're referring to? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll with that. Um, or the extent to which we are in, uh, uh, fear embarrassing ourselves in front of others, which is the bystander effect. Um, or the extent to which we will uh, want to cheat if we think we can get away with this, which is one of the lessons of the cheating studies. So there's a lot to our own psychology we don't recognize where we're not as good as we think we are. Uh, so that should make us recalibrate how we judge others and how we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the character gap, to, to tie it back to the title of the book, um, the character gap is precisely that. So it's the gap between the character we actually have and the character we should have. So the character we actually have, I, I call it a mixed character. We work in a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike how we tend to think we are, we tend to think we have, we're good people. We tend to think we have a good character for it's a five-point scale. We tend to give ourselves a four and a five, for example. Yeah. Um, I say, no, 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 no. Downgrade your self-assessments in light of the empirical research. So we're, we're a mixed bag. Not vicious. I know most people are not vicious, so we're not as bad as we could be. But we're definitely in, in the murky middle. Um, there's that. On the other hand, what we should be is virtuous. So a virtuous person has a, um, a really good character that's cross-situationally good, that's stably good mm-hmm. over time, that has other dimensions to it as well. Um, so what we want to do is shrink, or I think what we should do and should want to do is shrink this character gap between the character we actually have and the character we should have. Uh, bring our actual character up to the level as much as we can. We'll never get there completely. We'll never have perfect mm-hmm. character. But as much as we can, get up to the level that it should be. Yeah, yeah. And and you discuss this uh, a bit in the book, right? Like, uh, you know, a lot of this is, you know, doing the right thing when nobody's when nobody's looking, right? Because right. I think a lot about, you know, something I learned, you know, when I got sober, they taught me about this word uh, self-seeking, right? Like, I, I used to think I was this great person. I, I helped out people. I was there, but it was always this tick for tack thing. I was always keeping score. I was only doing it to get something else, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they started saying that a lot when I got sober. They're like, do you do the right thing when nobody's looking? Like, mm-hmm. would you do it even if you didn't get any praise any reward anything like that right so that's that's kind of how i started moving in that direction and just recognizing it and 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 it's hard because we're we're kind of wired to like signal right we we need other people to know that we're a good person because yeah like you know that's how we start building relationships and stuff i I want you to know i'm trustworthy and you know all these things so so it's this weird this weird kind of uh situation but you know I, i'm curious with with this kind of lack of understanding and rating ourselves higher on character i'm curious your thoughts on you know just you know there's a lot of people who are you know there's this debate like does cancel culture exist yes it does no it doesn't this is just accountability but uh, for example i was talking with some people just trying to 
you know, just have a conversation about uh, recently. I don't know if you heard about the all the craziness with Jeopardy and the hosts or whatever. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, like the producer who was going to become the host, uh, he stepped down because years ago, I think eight years ago, he called a woman a slut on the podcast, right? Eight years ago. And mm-hmm. I saw somebody say, you know, good, good. He's not getting this job, but this shows the importance of screening these people and going through their history before hiring them. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, record scratch in my head. I'm like, Ugh. I'm like, wait, so is the logic behind this that if somebody eight years ago said something that they should no longer qualify for getting a job ever? Right. You know, because there's these varying degrees and all this. And and, you know, my my the first thing I think about, because what's helped me what's helped me not judge so so, uh, other people so much is because I had to do a lot of self-reflection. Right. In uh, 12 step programs, you have a fourth step and you go through all your shit. You you go through every (laughs) terrible bad thing you've ever done. So when I see somebody do something, I'm like, all right, I've done worse. But anyways, anyways, to bring that back, like I'm curious your thoughts like do you think it's as bad as some people say do you think it's not as bad as some people say do you think like educating people about this character gap might help calm people the hell down just a little bit you know what are your thoughts on that as a whole yeah 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 yeah. good so and i I hope we can come back to the also the really interesting point about um doing the right thing even when no one's looking oh yeah i come back to that i'd love to i have some thoughts about that too um so I don't know enough about the Jeopardy case to comment on the, the specific details of that, um, mm-hmm. but it, it's this seems right to me. Uh, if we grant that most people are not good in light of the empirical evidence, that so most people have a mixed character, that means that the, part of our character is good, part of our character is not so good. There'll be situations in which we behave admirably. There'll be situations in which we d- behave deplorably. Mm-hmm. Uh, that should be the starting point whenever we meet someone for the first time is to assume that they're a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And we should not assume that they are, have perfect character or even really good character. Um, and so we should assume that there'll be uh, some things in their past that are not going to reflect well on them. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, how we should accurately view people until we know them better. And yeah. then once we get to know them better, maybe our opinion will change and our opinion could change in a variety of ways. It could, it could improve. You say, look, this person's much better than I thought they were. Uh, initially, this, it could also go the opposite direction. Say this person is actually much worse than a mixed bag. They're actually vicious. They're they're a bad person. Or could say the same. Yep, this person's pretty much a mixed bag, uh, just like I thought all along. Um, now, the next wrinkle to add to that is the fact that character changes. Mm. So this wasn't always held um, to be true, but I think that now, in the light of empirical research in the last twenty years, it's pretty clearly demonstrably true that whatever character you have now is not necessarily the character you have to have in the future. Yeah. Like people uh, like me are an example, right? Like yeah, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to suck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, and it just, you know, at a, at a group level, you can see people, for example, increasing in conscientiousness over time. So as a general matter, people tend to be low in conscientiousness, in their high school and college years, which is maybe not surprising, mm-hmm. um, when you know, like college kids are probably not the best uh, there. But then by their forties, fifties, and sixties, they're they're much much higher on their conscientiousness. So what's the point then? Uh, if character, first of all, is mixed, but it can change and people can get better over time, then it looks like we should not hold people 
who do generally change, not people who don't change, but to people who do generally change and improve, we should not hold them completely accountable for long ago past actions. Mm-hmm. Now, it depends on what those actions are, of course. I mean, if it's committing murder or something, well, yeah, you don't get off the hook. Yeah. You say, well, look, I'm a better person now, so don't, don't blame me. Yeah. You know? But if it's, if it's more minor things, uh, I think it's reasonable to, and you, again, you know that there's been character change and improvement, then I think it's, uh, it's a reasonable stance to adopt to be forgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, because forgiveness is also a virtue. Yeah. It's one of the character traits that's, that's admirable. It's intrinsically good to forgive. Um, I think if that's a case where um, forgiveness might be the appropriate attitude as opposed to condemnation, depending on really what stresses, depending on what it was though. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, when I, when I work with other people just, uh, you know, in recovery or people who are trying to get sober, even people just, you know, who come to me, like friends who come to me for advice, I can't stress enough how much, you know, forgiveness just, helped me move forward right because uh you know uh going back to 12-step programs let's talk about resentments are like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies you know what i mean like if i just hold on Mm. to this stuff and i don't believe people could change and all that stuff i'm just holding this stuff in but but when you're talking about like this kind of mixed bag and people evolving like and and we we shouldn't really judge person a, a person off like one sample like I almost, what I was almost hearing is almost like looking at it like scientific research, right? Like a terrible scientific study would be looking like running one test, looking at that one example and saying, this is the answer, right? You want a larger sample size and then kind of see what the, what the variables are, right? Because as you mentioned, like, you never know if somebody's having a bad day. If, uh, you know, something that helped me on my work, uh, uh, not work, my anger issues was, uh, I would lie to myself. Like if somebody was like just a jerk to me at the store or whatever, I'd be like, maybe their mom just died. Maybe just, you know, something like that because, because we, we never, we never know. Right. But we were quick to assume like, this is who they are. But, uh, but yeah, Yeah. I, I do, I do want to circle back to, uh, yeah. What are the, the doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Yeah. Like, cause yeah, yeah, you talk about that a lot in the book and I, I love it because that, that's something that I try to work on all the time. Yeah. So, uh, so let, so let me do two part then I'll, let me make a comment about sample size and I'll, I'll, uh, say something about the perfect, the right thing. Um, the sample size is really important in a variety of different ways. Um, it's really important when it comes to judging other people to make sure you have an adequate sample size of that person's behavior in a variety of different contexts, mm-hmm. not just seeing, okay, this student never cheats on tests. Therefore, this student must be an honest person. That's not enough. Even if you see repeatedly over time, you need more information about how the person behaves in, a, in other situations besides mm-hmm. test taking to get that, that good sample size for that particular person's honesty. Uh, another way that sample size matters a lot in, in my own research is is looking at scientific experiments and knowing, okay, one experiment isn't going to prove anything either. It's the same kind of points where, okay, these participants were in this one situation and they behave badly. Therefore, most people are not honest. Mm. That's a big jump. Yeah. In other words, big jumps from not enough evidence. So what I need to do when I'm trying to be a responsible researcher is uh, let's collect lots, dozens and dozens of different studies having to do with honesty in different situations. Mm. 
and let's look at the collective picture that emerges from those studies. Because no one study is going to prove anything. And no 10 studies is going to prove anything. But, you know, hopefully after a while, we get such a big mass of studies together and they paint a certain kind of picture, I think a mixed character, that we can draw some reliable conclusions. This is especially important right now because empirical research is going through a replication crisis <laughs> yeah. where, where certain studies are not replicating. And just recently, there was, you know, some notable cases of fraud even where certain uh, scientists uh, allegedly have fabricated their results. So you don't want to put too much stock in one or just a couple studies. Okay. Um, that's some further thoughts on sample science. Mm -hmm. Now, back to um, doing the right thing. So the, it's really, and this, these actually connect to each other because um, it, another limitation on sample size is, okay, I'm going to, uh, if, when I collect information about this other person, one thing that's pretty common is that I'm always present with that other yeah. person. So, right? I'm, I'm always there. So how does that person behave when I'm not there, when a person's with other people or when a person's alone? That, mm. that maybe is, is just as important to know about character as when I'm there. Um, so I think it really is true that how a person behaves when alone or when no one, what was looking, or at least when a person thinks that no one's looking. Yeah. And it's the most revelatory about someone's character uh, because it carves away a lot of the motivations that might be there to act well. Uh, the motivations of fear of punishments, mm -hmm. they're, they're put to one side. The motivations of making a good impression on other people, some impression management reasons, they're put to one side. Um, so now it's just, Am I going to do the right thing or am I not? Uh, and does the person step up to the plate or not? And what this one big lesson I draw from this kind of discussion is being a good person and having virtuous character is not just a matter of external behavior. It's also a matter of internal motivation. Mm. Um, so if people are behaving well, but they're doing it primarily to make a good impression on others or to avoid punishments. And when you take those things away, they don't behave well. They're not virtuous. Yeah. Uh, people need it to be really virtuous, need to have good behavior for the right reasons. And those right reasons will kick in even when no one's looking. Mm -hmm. And so those right, what are those right reasons? Those are reasons that don't have to do with self-interest. Though virtuous reasons are not self-interested reasons of benefiting yourself. They are either altruistic, so you care about other people, you're trying to benefit other people, or they're doing things for because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So they're they're dutiful reasons. So it's there are three categories. They're altruistic, which is trying to benefit another person for his or her own sake. There's dutiful, which is because it's the right thing. And then there's egoistic or self-interested because it would benefit me. Mm-hmm. And I put it put aside the egoistic ones. I say, if you really want to become a virtuous person, you gotta not only behave well, especially including when people are not looking, but you gotta have your heart in the right place, either altruistically, selflessly, or because you think it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And it, it's yeah, that's that's like this this whole thing. Like I I'll I'll just have conversations. I like having conversations with people about like this idea of altruism right like 
<laughs> because, you know, uh, like I was telling like, you know, the 12 step and 12 step programs are like, you stay sober by helping other people selflessly. I'm like, well, I'm getting something in return. So is it really a hundred percent and stuff like that? But, but anyways, like just my, my personal thing, like, uh, you know, I, I've had people like Michael Shermer on and like people who are like skeptics and debunkers and, and stuff like that. And although I'm really interested in that because I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want myself, my friends, uh, my son to fall for like conspiracy theories mm-hmm. at the same time as when we were talking earlier about like uh, you know, religious people and stuff. Like, I understand the benefits, right? Like, uh, if you think that there is this omniscient being keeping an eye on you, you're more mm-hmm. likely to do the right thing when nobody is looking. So there is this kind of evolutionary benefit, if you will, to <laughs> you know, believing right. and stuff. But me personally, I just, you know, I just keep in the back of my head, like, even though I can't prove it scientifically, I try, I try to think of like karma. Right. It's like, Hey, yeah, Chris, cool. just do good things. And, and <laughs> random bad things won't happen to you. But, uh, but yeah. So let me uh, let me jump on that. On that. Um, so the, one issue is: Does altruistic motivation even exist in the first place? Yeah. You know, are, are are people always self interested? Always trying to benefit themselves? Mm-hmm. That's an empirical question, and I think there's an empirical answer now, and it's pretty clear mm. what the empirical answer is. Uh, and that, and that answer is that altruistic motivation does exist. Uh, and the best empirical researcher on this question is Daniel Batson, B A T S O N who wrote a book called Altruism in Humans. Mm. And he, ca- he carried out a 30-year research project doing carefully designed experiments, testing egoism versus altruism, and finding again and again and again that altruistic motivation is the best explanation for the things he was looking at. Uh, so I think that we have now pretty good, not just like armchair, but actual empirical grounds for yeah. thinking altruism exists. I've never but, heard of this book. Yeah, I but, need it. Uh, but secondly, uh, you know, it's okay to benefit too, even when you're being altruistic. So there's, you know, the distinction between the goal and the side effect or byproduct. Yeah. So, you know, your goal could be to help someone else, some, help someone out in need, but a byproduct or side effect of that is that you can feel good about yourself mm-hmm. or you can get praise or you can get rewarded. That, so th- there's no, uh, in my mind, it's just not the case that being altruistic is going to have to be a really kind of miserable life or groveling or de- you know depressive yeah. or something like that. Um, you can really benefit a lot from being an altruistic person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so long as that's not your goal, the benefits are not your goal. If they become your goal, then you're egoistic again. Yeah. Uh, but if they're just a side effect, which they often are, then look, that's really, I think, a beautiful thing. You're helping yeah. others. For the right reasons, and in the process, your life can improve as well. Yeah, yeah. Earlier this week, I was actually talking to an evolutionary biologist, and and they brought up that point too of the byproduct. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you this: like it, it helped calm my mind down a lot because, like, for for you know, I've been sober since like 2012 and try to live this way, and I'm like, it's all of this egoistic, right? But you know, uh, it's it's the byproduct. It's not the main motivation I've learned, but because, you know, that, that used to keep me very angry all the time because, but because I had to realize that, right? Like, for example, a friend asks you to help them move and you say, yeah, and then you need something and they don't, and you get pissed, right? So it's like, okay, well, what was my true motivation? Was I helping to help them or was I helping, hoping they owed me later? So, so understanding the byproduct or, uh, you know, aspect of it has helped me a ton. And I'm glad you brought it up too. It helped kind of nail it in there. Um, but we, we, 
I want to touch on it before I let you go, but the topic of honesty, because that's something that I find really fascinating too. You have mm-hmm. the new book on it, but you talk about it in the character gap too, honesty, lying, mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff. So before I let you go, I just want to touch on this just a, a little bit. And like lying can be very complex, right? Like, you know, girlfriend, hey, do I look good? Mm-hmm. Right. Or yeah. uh, how does this taste? Or, you know, and uh, all, all this other stuff. So, so what, what, do you have like kind of a rule of thumb for honesty? Like you have an entire book on the subject, but is there a rule of thumb? Like if I want to, if I want to have good character, is there a rule of thumb I can, I can turn to? Uh, for, for honesty specifically? Um, oh boy, that's, you're, you're really putting me on the spot here. We might need a part, we might need a part two. No, 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 no. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so, so honesty is tricky here. Um, let me make let me make two brief points. Um, first of all, uh, there's a rule of thumb for being honest, and that is don't intentionally distort the facts as you see them. Mm-hmm. So don't intentionally distort the facts as you see them. So if you think the dessert was bad, and then you say, "Oh, honey, it was actually really good," you're intentionally distorting the facts as you see them. You're not yeah. being honest. Yeah. Um, if you think, um, how's the, t- how's the tie look on me? And the other person says, oh, it looks great. They don't think that at all. Again, they're intentionally distorting the facts as they see them. This, but honesty, uh, applies much more broadly than just a line. It also applies to cheating. It applies to stealing. It applies to misleading people. It applies mm-hmm. to, to bullshit. It applies to hypocrisy, lots of different things. Mm-hmm. All of them though, have the same kind of basic problem when it comes to failing to be honest, which is you're, you're intentionally distorting the facts. Now, second point though, um, honesty isn't all there is to morality. Uh, so you can fail to be honest, but still do the right thing, mm. which might sound like it's, it's paradoxical. I mean, wait a minute, I'm, I'm being dishonest, but you're telling me I may actually be doing the right thing. And the answer is yes, that could happen in some cases. Uh, so there's a the distinction here is between being honest or dishonest uh, and doing the right thing versus the wrong thing. The right thing is a matter of honesty, but also other considerations that come into play as well. A really clear illustration of this is the famous Nazi at the door example. Mm-hmm. So if you're hiding Nazis in, in World War II, uh, I'm sorry, if you're hiding from Nazis in World yeah. War II and you're uh, also helping a Jewish family escape from the Nazis, uh, and they're in your basement and they're kind of, you know, sequestered away. And here comes a knock at the door and it's a Nazi doing a routine to patrol the neighborhood saying, do you know where any Jews are? And you say, no, I don't know where any Jews are. You are not being honest. You're being yeah. dishonest. You're, you're intentionally distorting the facts. However, at the same time, you, you could be doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Because honesty is one consideration, but so too is compassion. And compassion mm-hmm. towards the Jewish family, in this case, outweighs honesty towards the Nazi. And so all things considered, the right thing to do is to lie to the Nazi. Yeah. Even though it's dishonest. So yeah. what's the takeaway from all that? Um, honesty is one thing that involves non-intentionally distorting the facts, but it's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. Other things matter too. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because my last and final question, because I, I'm wondering, and since you teach this type of philosophy, when I when I started learning about this, uh, one of the first things I learned about was like utilitarianism versus like deontology, right? And I heard like, you know, Kant's example, isn't it about like a murderer, like chasing somebody or whatever. And and so like, just correct me if I'm wrong, because here's my thoughts on it. So his thought is lying is always wrong. Like he wouldn't, he thinks it's bad to lie to the Nazis who are hunting Jews. So uh, if I'm understanding that correct, well, my second one is, isn't that insane? Like, I, I don't, I just, I just don't understand. Like, like, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, well, you're clearly not the right uh, <laughs> philosophy to follow. Like, that seems, that seems crazy. So, so yeah, if you could, if, if I was your student, what would you tell me if those were my thoughts on it? Yeah, 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 no, no. Um, that, that's a great, what a, what a question to end on. Um, so yeah, so yes, you, first thing is that that does seem to be Kant's view. Yeah. So Kant had an, an essay on the supposed right to lie, in which he had this example of an axe murderer, which parallels exactly the Nazi example I just gave. The Nazi example is just an updated version of Kant's axe murder example. Yeah. And Kant says, no, you cannot lie to the axe murderer, which means no, you cannot lie to the Nazi. Uh, that also seems to follow from part of his moral theory. Uh, so he has different formulations of what's called the categorical imperative. And his second one, which is very famous, is treat others as ends, never merely as means. And treat people which re re with dignity and respect uh, and don't instrumentalize them. Is one way to, to, uh, to cash that out a little bit more. Uh, well, if that's the right view, then that's going to prohibit you from lying to the Nazi as well. Mm -hmm. because you would not be respecting the Nazi. And the Nazi is still a person with dignity and you would be disrespecting that person. So uh, it looks like in those aspects of Kant, there's longer discussion to be had here. Other aspects of Kant seem to tell a different story, but those aspects of Kant seem to say no lying. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, is that crazy? Well, it's at least very hard to accept. Um, <laughs> yeah, very hard to accept. I mean, I'm reticent to call it crazy conscious, you know, hundred times better philosopher than I'll ever be. He's, he's absolutely you know, brilliant, uh, uh, but maybe wrong here. Um, so when I poll my students, because I teach this, this very issue every semester in ethics, mm -hmm. I poll my students overwhelmingly, like 90 to 99% of them will say, you have to lie to the Nazi. Yeah. So it has, it's true that has no real intuitive support these days. And, uh, and, most people think this is a part of Kant that they have to get rid of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just with with everything, with every every book I read, every person I talk to, everything I learn, I'm like, take the best, leave the rest. That's that's my personal philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, like you said, dude is brilliant. He has so many great, you know, uh, uh, things, and and it's just I'm like that one thing. I'm a little, I'm a little questionable, yeah. but, uh, wait, but, but yeah, as, as I mentioned before we started, I didn't even get to half the questions I wanted to. So I hope everybody goes out and grabs the book. Um, so two things before I let you go, where is the best place for everybody to find you? Like, uh, are you, are you still like publishing research and, you know, I know you do some articles, so where's the best place for people to find you. And then more importantly, do you have like another uh, kind of more widespread book that you're working on similar to the character of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good. Um, so the easiest places to find me are my website, which is Christian B. Miller, 
Miller.com. It's christianbmiller.com or just Google my name, Christian Miller. Uh, or on social media, places like Twitter, Facebook, I'm at, at character gap, one word, character gap. Um, and then if the future plan is this. So I just this summer published two books. One is the Aussie academic book and another is a moral psychology introduction. Mm. Uh, and so I've kind of, I've, I've done a, I've, I'm, I'm a little bit empty at the moment, right? I don't have much, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, so now I'm just kind of starting over. And the plan for the next book is a popular version of the honesty book. So it's character gap part two, just focus on honesty, taking mm. the academic research I've done on honesty and our honesty project here, Wake Forest, and distilling that down into a much more accessible format and trying to do the same thing again with the character gap yeah. uh, with this new research. Beautiful. Awesome. And, and yeah, like, like I said, like I, I, I could read the character gap multiple times. It has good reminders and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, like I said, like, I, I think, you know, it's, it's intuitive to judge others. So rereading the book the other day, like help me be like, okay, Chris, calm, calm down a little bit. So, so yeah, I, I love it. And thank you for writing that book. And, and yeah, thanks for coming on to chat about it. And maybe sometime we'll dedicate an entire episode to honesty because <laughs> I know we can get into the weeds on that. So thanks so Christian, much. Thanks. That'll be great. Thanks for having me on your show. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Christian. And, and yeah, these are, these are just, you know, interesting things that we should all be thinking about, right? Like we all think that we are great people, you know, there, there's that thing that pops up, uh, you know, that everybody's the hero of their own story. And I love Christian's book because like we discussed in this episode, there's who we want to be, right? And who we are. And there's that gap in between. And yeah, I really hope you guys check out his book because they've done so much research to test this stuff. And, you know, the context, the situations of all this, they, they matter. But I think the most important part about reading this book is that, you know, we, we cut other people some slack. Like we judge others so, so harshly. Like I, I sit here and I just, I just kind of like watch on Twitter and like, I'm like, holy crap. Like the way we judge each other, people are just freaking out. But I think, you know, when we learn more about this stuff, uh, you know, we were a little bit more tolerant of others, but also it's important for us to be tolerant of ourselves and realize that it's kind of an unrealistic expectation to just be, you know, at the top of our game. So do me and do yourself a favor, head down to the description, make sure you're following Christian, but most importantly, grab a copy of the character gap. It is definitely something I'll be reading again. It's something that I think about when I'm, you know, talking with my son and trying to help mold him into a good little person. All right. And also his book, uh, honesty, like we said, it's a little bit more academic. Uh, I've been working my way through it, but it is good. And it, it brings up a lot, a lot like, like, it's crazy that you can write an entire book on honesty, right? So if you're into that stuff, make sure you grab that. I'll link that down in the description as well, all right? But anyways, before I let you go, don't forget, make sure you are also following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. I love chatting with all of you. You can keep up to date with all the new books I'm reading, upcoming guests, and all sorts of stuff, all right? But yeah, uh, if you want to support the podcast, there's some really easy ways that you can do that. All right. First one, make sure you're following the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on. All right. Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, whatever it is, make sure you hit that little follow button. Next, make sure that if there's any episodes like this one with Christian or any other episode, if you like it or you think other people might find it interesting, 
make sure you share it. That is huge, 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 huge. So please share it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is. And lastly, if you could take a second, go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All right. All these things that really help uh, grow the podcast, get the word out there. But most of all, the algorithms love that stuff. All right. But some other ways that you can help support the podcast and what I'm doing here, uh, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com, buy some of the books that I have written, a lot of them on mental health, addiction recovery, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can also become a patron and it's down in the description below, as well as an affiliate link for better help online therapy. So mental health is a huge part of my life. Better help is a service that I've personally used, which is why I, I vouch for them. And I've been an affiliate of theirs for, you know, a few years now, uh, but I use their service. I've had friends use their service. It's fantastic. It's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. So if you are somebody in need of therapy, which I think we should all have therapy, uh, go ahead and check out that affiliate link for better help down below. All right. So another huge thanks to Christian for taking the time to come on to chat about his books. And yeah, for all of you, thanks for hanging out. I hope you had a, an amazing rest of your day and stay tuned because we have two more episodes at least coming up this week on some very, very interesting and cool topics. And yeah, you don't want to miss them. All right. So stay tuned and I'll talk to you next time.